You might like to uh, keep your Bibles open at that passage as we'll be looking at it as we go through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've already prayed tonight that your Holy Spirit would come upon us afresh tonight. We read in this passage, Lord, that, the, that Jesus was full of your Spirit and he spoke mighty words. And so we pray, Father, that uh, your words that Jesus spoke all those years ago would speak to us anew tonight. Amen. Well, I wondered, um, have you ever waited a long time for something? As you see it draw new, nearby, coming to you, anticipation rises. Do you remember the turning points as you moved from going out with that girl or boyfriend to becoming engaged and then marriage? Or what about the anticipation of graduation from college or school? Or a work promotion, the purchase of a house, the arrival of a child? Well, the moment, when it comes, is full of joy, isn't it? And the emotion of the realisation of what actually had been anticipated. Well, the Bible is the story of the anticipation of God's salvation of his people. God renewing, or God's renewing of relationships between himself and humanity. And God had promised the decisive demonstration of his salvation of his people for a long time. And now in this passage in front of us in Luke 4, Jesus turns to declare the day has come. Opportunity is present. After almost 2,000 years of promise, uh, stretching all the way back to Abraham, Jesus claims that the promise of a prophet like Isaiah are now being decisively realised. But, as in many great moments, questions arise. Is this really it? Have we moved from the days of promise to the time of the beginning of realisation? Is God at work to fulfil his promise? Well, Jesus' synagogue declaration brings a moment of decision for those who hear his claims. It's a snapshot of his entire ministry. Jesus offers much, but the crowd question what's on offer. In the tension of contrast, Luke's readers are left to choose. Yet, despite the tension, Jesus does not attempt to separate himself from Judaism. Rather, he presents his mission as the natural extension and realisation of Israel's hope. And as Jesus hopes to show that the time of fulfilment has come, the opportunity to share in an experienced release according to God's promise has come this very day. You'll see that if you look at verse 21. Now, if we're to understand this, we need to understand something about the order of a synagogue service of the time. What would have happened within it? Well, there would have been uh, 
something called the Shema, which was recited at the beginning. That was a passage from Deuteronomy 6. And then they would have had prayers. After this, the scriptures were read, beginning with a portion from the Torah. That's from the books Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then they moved next on to a section from the prophets. After the prophets' reading, there would have been a sermon. And often the speaker would have linked the two passages together. Well, in our passage, Jesus appears to speak during the reading of the prophets within this service. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, a passage that promises the coming of God's salvation. But unlike others who preached for quite a long time, perhaps a bit like me, um, he was very short. His sermon said this, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a claim to be made by this man Jesus. Well, our passage starts in verse 18. If you look in verse 18, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus takes Isaiah's prophetic word and claims to be directed by God to minister and preach to the people. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, given at the time of his baptism. This is God's Son. This is the second part of the Trinity of God being filled with the third part. The details follow. But interesting, the reader of Luke's Gospel, that's us, knows more about what this means than Jesus' original audience would have done in the synagogue. Because the first hearers would have heard a claim for a divinely directed ministry. But they may not have realised that at his baptism, Jesus had had been anointed, not just for a prophetic ministry, but as Messiah. Now, as readers of Luke's Gospel, we will have a memory of the anointing fresh in our minds. Jesus' remark recalls chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, which says this, When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And so his statement here, along with what follows, shows that he is both an anointed son and a prophetic figure. He reveals God's will and brings God's promise. So in verse 18 and 19, we read of the goal of this anointing. What was the purpose of it? Why was he anointed with the Holy Spirit? Well, we read the the point of the whole thing was to preach good news to the poor. Now, this has caused great debate over the ages, particularly amongst theologians. What does this actually mean? What does he actually mean by bringing good news to the poor? Does this verse and those that surround it resonate with themes of political liberation for the oppressed? Was he being a politician, in other words? Is Jesus supporting class struggle? 
Well, Luke's use of the term poor in chapter 1 and beyond makes it clear that it's not only a reference to socioeconomics, but on the other hand, neither does it exclude class from Jesus' concerns. In chapter 1, verses 53 to 53, the reference is to the humble. And it's surrounded by descriptions that indicate it's the spiritually sensitive character of the poor. Luke 6, verses 20 to 23, also compares the trouble the poor face in this world to the experience that the prophets of old faced. So the text that Jesus reads is not a carte blanche endorsement of the poor, nor is it a political manifesto. This good news extends only to the spiritually sensitive poor that respond. The passage recognises that it's often the poor who respond to God's message and embrace it with humility. If you remember what the uh, Apostle James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 5, he said this, Listen, my brothers, that's fellow believers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love them? And so we see that the poor tend to sense their need. They have no delusions of power, no delusions of control and independence, which is what we often find with people who are well-educated and financially sufficient. And so this passage then, I believe, offers us us some challenge. We live in an age, don't we, where we've got decline in church attendance. We live in an age where overall people are getting wealthier and wealthier. And so let's ask ourselves, do we reflect the nature of Jesus and his teaching? Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, which gave him the power and authority to meet people's needs and teach them concerning the kingdom. So I've got three challenges for us tonight as we look at this passage. The first one is this. Are we submissive submissive to the Holy Spirit? Are we submissive to the Holy Spirit? Do we seek the anointing of him within our personal and corporate lives? And are we, as followers of Jesus, following Jesus' examples, being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, if Jesus needed to be full of the Holy Spirit, how much more so will we need to be as followers of him? But secondly... Is the priority of the community that we are a part of, if we are a part of this local church here, is the priority to go out and preach the good news to the poor? Is that our priority? Because that's what it appears to be to Jesus. Of course, preaching can be many things. Yes, the spoken word, but also actions that bring help to people in physical, spiritual and emotional needs. I'm glad to be able to report back to you that at the last PCC meeting, when we were considering priorities for the budget, we agreed that the top priority should be to for outreach to the local community. 
following Jesus' mandate to go and preach the good news to the poor. But can I suggest that in doing this, we need, don't we, to identify the need and then work out practical ways of delivering it. So as an example, we've already heard tonight in the prayers about the needs of the young people who live in the community and meet around the park for leisure activities, just 150 yards over that way. So let's practically get out to share to them that Jesus' provision for them. Of course, on the surface of our society, one of the problems we have in our evangelism is that there doesn't appear to be a need. Well, in trying to share Jesus with our friends, colleagues, and uh, families, there has to be a perceived need. Some of you will know uh, our our fellow member of our congregation, John Malcolm. And he was sharing with me recently how, uh, how he prays each day that the Holy Spirit will be working within the lives of the people he will meet that day so that they are prepared for a witness to Jesus and the presentation of Jesus as God's saving son. The Holy Spirit has to be involved because this is a spiritual battle. It's not a, a matter of trying to persuade people to believe in Jesus. It's a spiritual battle. And I believe that this, this pattern of John's is a great pattern for us to share, isn't it? To pray each day that Jesus and the Holy Spirit will be preparing the hearts and minds of people that we are going to te- talk to that day. And so in the Gospels, we read of those looking to God for hope. Jesus was the answer. So to respond to God, one must be open to him. For those in need of God, Jesus has a message of good news. Luke loves to emphasize the, the potential audience for this message that can be found amongst the poor. His social concern expresses itself fully as later in the Gospels. The other Gospels don't. But this social concern is concerned with spiritual realities and not political ideologies. So there we've got two challenges. What's the third challenge? Well, the third challenge, I believe, is the challenge of healing and delivery from demonic activity, bringing freedom to those oppressed. So God sent Jesus to proclaim, we read, freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed. Now, as you read on in Luke's Gospel, Luke 4, verses 31 to 44, makes it clear that the impression here is mainly spiritual. Forces that stand opposed to humanity, forces that want to pull us down, to bring sin and pain and pressure into our lives. Being under demonic oppression is like being trapped in a prison of pain and despair. And we know, don't we, of people who live in pain and despair. Well, Jesus offers release from such pain and dark despair. That's what his miracles picture and point to. That's the reality behind the act of miracle working. And so, as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus' 
words then work at two levels simultaneously. He will heal the blind, but that also pictures the coming of light to those in darkness. The healing of the blind man in chapter 18 also pictures what God does for Zacchaeus. Jesus is the physician who comes to heal the sick. Eventually, of course, Jesus will bring total restoration and release to his creation. We read of that in Romans 8 and Revelation 21. But in the meantime, deliverance here means release into forgiveness and having a relationship with God. And so, this is a challenge for each one of us. The challenge for us is not only in belief concerning what Jesus did back then, but what he expects us as his followers to do likewise. We read in the Gospel of John, verse, uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, that Jesus makes an amazing claim. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing, he will do even greater works than this, because I'm going to the Father. Well, how is this possible? How can we do this? Well, Jesus says it will be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 14 and 15, Jesus speaks out often of another counsellor, the Spirit of Truth, which we know the disciples received at Pentecost in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit is the mechanism through which Jesus said his believers will do even greater works. And of course, this is possible because unlike Jesus, who was only one person, there are now many followers, in fact, millions in his world today. And Jesus promises that his followers will have the power to do more than him. And so we can see that this means that we are called to bring healing and restoration to people in need through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when, of course, this happens, there's often a response. People come into the church, into the community, because they have seen the love and concern, power and authority of Jesus, and not a religion of dead works. And so Jesus' statement here that he liberates the oppressed means it's clear that he's more than a prophet. He actually brings salvation. And this is why, of course, he goes on to say that he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, what's he mean by that? Well, the allusion here is to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. And it's the year when they cancelled debts out. Debts were cancelled, so it meant you didn't owe anything. Slaves were freed from bondage during the year of the Jubilee. And this is a picture that Jesus brings for those that respond to his message of hope. And so Jesus builds on the picture of Isaiah's ministry, which proclaims such hope, and and Jesus fulfills this hope. So how then are you going to respond tonight to this picture of hope? Are you going to respond? Am I going to respond? Well, Jesus' teaching always requires a response by the people that are listening to him. 
and by the people that are reading his words. Jesus claimed that today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing makes a claim upon both the listeners and the readers in the position of having to make a choice. There's no fence sitting here, is there? It's not possible to say, well, I'm not sure. Jesus' teaching is not some ethical instruction detached from his person. He is the promise of God. Either he brings God's promise or he does not. Well, in our lives and our witness to our friends and our colleagues, to the local community, surely we need to make this clear, don't we, that there is a choice for them to make concerning Jesus and his claims. And we read here, in fact, that the crowd does actually make a response. The crowd does reflect on his claim. We read that they are amazed and perplexed simultaneously. They spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that had come from his lips. They recognised a persuasive speaker in their midst. But his pedigree gave them pause for thought. They asked the question, isn't this Joseph's son? How could he be the promised one of God? Knowing their thoughts, Jesus replies in three ways. First, he quotes a proverb that indicates they want him to prove it. Show me is their basic response to his claim. Yet after the evidence is produced, there is still doubt. Miracles, as powerful a testament as they are, will still not prove the point. Miracles, though they are a testimony, in the end never convince anyone who doesn't want to come to God. People must be willing to hear the word of God and receive it before they will see anything as God's work. But secondly, Jesus quotes another proverb, that a prophet is not honoured in his home. And this reveals his understanding of Old Testament history. He knows how repeatedly God's messengers and message is met with rejection. And the, prophet, the proverb also serves as a prediction that for many in Israel, Jesus' ministry will fit into this tragic mould. It will be rejected. But thirdly, Jesus records the history of Israel in the period of Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Now this history lesson is a warning. It was a warning to them and it's a warning to us because this period in time was a low point in the national life of the Israelites when rejection of God was at an all-time high, idolatry and unfaithfulness ran rampant. And so God moves, moved his works of mercy outside of the nation, and he moved them into the Gentile regions, as only a widow in Sidon, a name in the Syrian, experienced God's healing. The price of rejecting God's message is severe. Mercy moves on to other places, in other words. And as I was reading and thinking about this, I was wondering, is this is what's happening to our country today? and to the national church as a result of not obeying Jesus' teaching and the Holy Spirit's leading. It's quite risky 
to walk away from God's offer of deliverance. And this exchange reveals the basic challenge of Jesus' ministry. The choice he presents carries high stakes. But we see here that the crowd does not seize the opportunity. Rather, Jesus' warning angers them. The suggestion that Gentiles might be blessed while Israel reaps nothing leaves them fuming and angry. And isn't this a common response? Many respond similarly today when they realise that the gospel is a matter of take it or you will be responsible to God for the consequences. And I believe it's also a challenge to us, isn't it, as believers? Are we being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are we doing what Jesus calls us to do, bringing healing and deliverance to those in need within our city. Well, we read at the end that Jesus departs, despite the crowd's efforts to seize him and remove him from the scene. And we know, don't we, that people can try to turn their backs on Jesus and do away with him. But Jesus will always be in their midst. And that's what we can take tonight, I think, okay? We can take the fact that Jesus offers us hope. He offers those that we love and those that we live with and and work with. He offers them hope. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be working in all that we do and say. Amen.